0: Genesis chapter 3, now a serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. She took some of its fruit and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then, verse 7, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves. Listen to the pivot in this story. Then the man and his wife, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. What did they do? They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man, and he said... To him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, Well, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man replied, The woman you, you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. So the Lord, Lord God asked the woman, What have you done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. In the garden, in the presence of God, there we find Adam and Eve. God's beautiful design. Genesis 1, 2, and 3, his beautiful design, one of freedom, right? Free to eat from any tree, except for that one. Don't focus on the one, though. Look at what else. Free to eat from any tree. Right. His beautiful design, one of pleasure. Man and woman, sinless and intimately together. They were naked, unafraid, and unashamed. They were loved, and yet they were also lovers. At the core of who they were, they there they were, fully satisfied in their creator and in one another. His beautiful design. Satan perverts everything. At the very core of his being, he is a fool. A fool who wants nothing more than to lead people astray and ultimately lead them to death. And why do I know that? In the garden, innocence is shattered. Shame overtakes their heart. How did you know that you were naked? Perversion rears its ugly head and it takes the creator's design of sexuality and it distorts it. Deception leads them to believe they desire something more than their creator. God's beautiful design of intimacy with him and with one another is broken. This morning, first off, welcome if this is your first time. Uh, I said this in my prayer. I, I never am going to shy away from having the hard, I'm not just going to skip over text. I think it's important, especially in our culture, in our day and age, to talk through sexuality of what it, what's the biblical design here. And we see God's beautiful design. But this morning, we find ourselves living in a Genesis 3 fallen world. We hear this, and I, I believe that we all desire to get back to the garden. Like you hear that before the serpent enters and you're like, "Man, what a what a peaceful place. What a beautiful place. What an intimate place to be with the creator who created and breathed life into existence, to be with him back in the garden how blushes and beautiful it was sin was not present. Man and woman together intimately. The design in Genesis chapter 3, we see The serpent entered. We see also from that moment forward, if we were to keep reading, we see the story of redemption play out all throughout the Scriptures. It doesn't just stop with the serpent. Yes, sin enters the world, but all throughout this story, we see a beautiful story of redemption play out all throughout the Scriptures. From there until revelation, until Christ comes back, and eventually we see the one who comes to restore the Father's beautiful design. He is our Redeemer, the Son of God, who is sent into our mess. And it's here where we see this ultimate story of love displayed. This great romance, if you will. Jesus shows up for his bride. He lays down his life and he makes a way back, back towards the garden, to the Father's beautiful design of his love for us. And so because of our great Redeemer, like this is the gospel message here, Genesis to Revelation, because of him, our great redeemer, this morning we can fight the enemy. The one full of lies and deception and perversion. And we can can allow the spirit of God to fully redeem this beautiful design of sexuality. Family, we've got to have a conversation. We've got to talk about sexuality. We can't shy away from it anymore. You can turn on the news. You can look at your news feed. You can see all of the things. There's, There's no more turning away from it. We've already... Far exceeded that. We need to be talking about this from the pulpit. If it's not our church, I pray you find a church that talks about hard things, that talks about what the Bible says about this. You need to be talking about this in the home. You need to be talking with your spouse. You need to be talking about God's beautiful design for sexuality in your home, with your children, with your spouse, in your community groups, in a time where everyone is looking for the classic song looking for love in all of the wrong places we have the word of god who gives us answers to all of our questions about life and holiness and meaning and identity and yes even sexuality so if we'd all agree that we would live that we live now in a genesis 3 fallen world where our view of sexuality and intimacy has been perverted it's distorted then I think the question we got to answer this morning is how do we fight to redeem God's beautiful design of sexuality in our lives? How do we fight to redeem this? I think we would all agree it's distorted. So what do we do? How do we fight to redeem this? This morning we look at His Word. Specifically, a few different chapters in Proverbs this summer, we're, we're, we're taking Psalms, we're taking collection of Proverbs, we're working through what does God's Word say, and we kick off Judges this fall. But this morning, the Proverbs, they're packed full of wisdom to live by. And where we see this, it's more of like a conversation that takes place between Solomon and his, and his son. Chapters 5, 6, and 7, where the father actually talks to his son about how he can redeem this beautiful, God's beautiful design for sexuality, And as we dig into the word this morning, let me just first by saying this to our parents. My son is in here. He's eight years old. We've had the conversation. It, I say this often. Your children are being discipled by something at all times. Whether that's at school, whether that's on their news feed, whether that's their social media, whether that's their iPad. Something and someone is shaping and discipling them into something. If I could just plead with you, have the conversations with your kids. What a great reminder to see Solomon have this conversation with his son about sex, and it should start in the home. It should. Now, just as a disclaimer, if your kids have questions about this, uh, this, we've talked about this before, we have tons of resources. I'm going to walk alongside this with you. I'm going to help you. I'll point you to some beautiful resources. But just remember, we're all being shaped by something. So don't shy away from the hard conversation. So let's dig in together. Listen to these sections, starting Proverbs 5. Willis read, I want to read again. Proverbs, my son, pay attention to my wisdom. Listen closely to my understanding so that you may maintain discretion in your lips, safeguard knowledge. Chapter six, verse 20, my son, keep your father's command. Don't reject your mother's teaching. Always bind them to your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you walk here and there, they will guide you. When you lie down, they will teach. They will watch over you. When you wake up, they will talk to you. For a command is a lamp. Teaching is a light, and corrective discipline is the way of life. Chapter 7. My son, obey my words. Treasure my commands. Keep my commands and live and guard my instructions as you would the pupil of your eye. Tie them to your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Verse 24, now sons, listen to me and pay attention to the words from my mouth. Solomon, the wisest man to walk the face of the planet besides the Son of God, is saying, listen, pay attention, pay close attention, keep these commands, bind them to your heart, obey my words, treasure them, live by them, guard them, tie them to your fingers, write them on your heart. The wise father is pleasing with his son to do this. Take heart. Take heart in what I'm saying to you. So what does he keep drawing his son's attention to? Wake up, see this, listen, take heart to this, to what? Well, chapter five, he says, though the lips of the forbidden woman woman, drip honey and her words are smoother than oil, in the end, she's as bitter as a wormwood. And as sharp as a double-edged sword, her feet go down to the death, her steps head straight for Sheol. Chapter 6, they will protect you from my words, my commands, God's words will protect you from an evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a wayward woman. Don't lust in your heart for her beauty or let her captivate you with her eyelashes. Proverbs 7, say to wisdom, you are my sister. Call understanding your relative. She will keep you from a forbidden woman, a wayward woman with her flattering Talk, don't let your heart turn aside to her ways. Don't stray onto her paths, for she has brought many down to death. Her victims are countless. Her house is the road to shield, to destruction, to death, descending to the chambers of death. You see, the wise father says, listen to the wisdom. Keep to it, because you will be tempted. Not if, when. The wise father keeps drawing his attention multiple times to the foolishness of sexual sin. He wisely and he sternly tells him, you're going to walk into, son, you're going to walk into a world full of sexual foolishness. Back then, oh my word, now, you will walk into a world of sexual foolishness. And he warns him over and over again of the consequences and the strategies of temptation. Look at chapter 5, verse 3 through 5. And the father of lies, if I just be very clear, is good at what he does. I mean, the first creation, man and woman deceived by the serpent. He's good at what he does. It'll look like sweet, like honey. That's what Solomon says. You're probably going to be attracted to it. But it will poison you. You know that honey is sweet, right? Like everybody, we understand honey is sweet. If what Solomon's saying here, if it was really honey, then why, son, would it leave a bitter aftertaste? What he's saying is don't be fooled. Whatever she is saying, don't... Be fooled. So I'm going to start here to just plead with you to listen to these words. Let wisdom speak to your heart today. Every one of us in this room has either previously dealt with sexual sin, are in it right now, currently struggling with some sort of sexual sin. You've lusted, you've had thoughts, you've acted out of those thoughts, you've sinned against and also have been sinned against. You've committed the sin and you're also a sufferer of sin Some sort of sexual sin. I can almost guarantee that all of us have dealt with some sort of sexual immorality in our lives. Whatever it is, I want us to see wisdom from the text on how we can fight and kill sin together. And get back to God's beautiful design of sexuality. So with that in mind, here are four things. Very practical this morning. That's what Proverbs, it's very practical wisdom. How do we walk in this? And the first is this. I'm going to walk through some scripture with you, but the first is this, flee from temptation. Not a lot of people writing it down. I think this is worth it. Flee from temptation. Sin, especially sexually sin, is not meant to be flirted with. It's attractive. It looks like honey. It might taste like honey at first, but it leaves a bitter aftertaste. There's a certain charm about it that will always try to draw you in. He's good at it. It's inviting. It's seductive. It tells this alluring story. You'll see in chapter 7, it's just unbelievable of this story of seduction. It's wild. And so we're to flee from it. And we flee from it. We don't flirt with it. We flee. You're going to hear this over and over. We flee from it because it's addictive. Verse 22 what does what Solomon says? Will the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. And he is held fast to the cords of his sin. Ensnared to it. I don't know if you've ever been hunting. I don't know if you ever watched like hunters back in the day, how they used to set traps very deceptive. You, you, you create this environment where it looks safe and it looks like, you know, for the varmint, like this is, there's, look at this, it's beautiful. There's even blood right here. Uh, I, one of my favorite, this is kind of weird, but one of my favorite stories re, uh, read uh, was talking about how ranchers in, in the mountains in Alaska, Colorado, where it's really cold, their, their job is to protect from wolves. How they would do that is is they would take a knife And they would dip it in blood, blood of a steer or a goat or a lamb. And they would freeze that. It's freezing cold. And they would put that knife in the snow. And wolves would come up on that. They'd smell it. They'd come up on that. And they, you know, it it smells good. It looks good. There's blood there. I think I'm going to go in. And what, what would happen is those wolves would begin to lick that knife. And over time, what they're not even understanding, the wolf is licking his own blood as he's licked the blood of the goat or the lamb or the, uh, the animal and he's now cut his own tongue and he literally bleeds out by drinking his own blood. Very vulgar, I get that, but I want you to see it's enticing. Sin will entice you, but over time it will lead you to death. Every single time. That's what Solomon says, the iniquities of the wicked, they ensnare him. He's held fast to his cords of sin, especially sexual sin. I'm going to be very vulnerable with you. Prayed through this. I've had people use this against me. Um, I struggled with sexual sin for a long time, with pornography. It's very bold say that. There was a time in my life, even in the first parts of into our marriage, we've been married almost 16 years, Where sexual sin ruled my heart. Pornography ensnared me. What started as something small was soon, in my eyes, probably not in the eyes, I could compare to all sorts of things, but in my eyes, I could feel and, and sense that this has ensnared me. It's now a raging lust of my heart. And the more you feed that lust, the more it grows. The more you give in and feed those desires, the more you're going to feel that that's actually what you need. The more that happens, the easier it's going to be to stay entangled to it. And the harder it will be to stop. Here's the deal. I, I don't think any of us set out to intentionally step into to ensnare ourselves to sexual sin. I didn't wake up one day and say, hmm, I can't wait to look at porn. I didn't do that. Again, all of chapter 7 is this seductive, just adulterous, just pulling you in with your eyes. John Mark Comer says this, Our deepest desires, usually to become people of goodness and love, are often sabotaged by the stronger surface-level desires of our flesh. This is exacerbated by a culture where the widespread wisdom of the day is to follow our desires, not crucify them, but in reality, be true to yourself is some of the worst advice anybody could ever give you. And here's why. Giving in to the desires of our flesh does not lead us to freedom in life, as many people assume, but instead to slavery, and in the worst case scenario, addiction. And I want you to hear this, which is a kind of prolonged suicide by pleasure. Flee from it. Chapter 5, verse 7. So now, sons, listen to me. Don't, get, don't turn away from the words from my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Don't go near the door of her house. Chapter 6, 24 through 26. They, my commands, the wisdom I'm giving you, son, will protect you from an evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a wayward woman. Don't lust in your heart for her beauty or let her captivate you with her eyelashes for a prostitute's fee is only a loaf of bread, but the wife of another man goes after a precious life, leads to death. Look at this progression. I've been telling you about the progression in chapter seven, verse six, at the window of my house, I looked. I looked through my lattice I saw among the inexperienced. I looked, I saw. I noticed among the youths a young man lacking sense. Oh, the deception here. Crossing the street near her corner, he strolled down the road to her house. Looking, now strolling, down an intentional road to her house. And at twilight in the evening in the dark of night, a woman came to meet him. Dressed like a prostitute, having a hidden agenda. We'll be very frank. Flirting with temptation all the way down the street is not wisdom. Flee from it. Don't flirt with temptation. How? How, Matt? How do I do this? It's always the question. It's always what I want to try to get to. Because on Tuesday, when you're struggling with this, how in the world are you supposed to handle it? Husbands, wives, children that are all entangled in some sort of sin, specifically sexual sin. What do we do? Well, the way we fight and overcome our our flesh isn't through willpower, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. Brother and sister, you've been empowered with the Holy Spirit. And you get access to that via the practices of Jesus. Comer goes on and he says this. Is it any wonder that when Jesus went toe-to-toe with the devil, he was fasting? In fact, it was after 40 days of fasting It's easy to misinterpret this story. I have for years. I took it to mean that the devil waited until Jesus was just exhausted and weak to make his move. But this is a gross misunderstanding. of The reciprocal relationship between fasting, fighting sin, fleeing from sin, and spiritual power. Forty days in, Jesus was at the height of his spiritual power. He was able to wisely discern the devil's lies and dismiss his temptations. With such skill is the potential of fasting. Fasting and confession, prayer and reading, delighting in who all of God is. That's how we fight sin. That's what it means to flee. We, we don't have time, men, women. We don't have time to, to scroll on our phones because we're just, we're just so wrapped up in delighting in the Father and being present with our children and loving the people God's put in front of us that we don't even have time to mess to flirt with sin. You do this in delighting in who he is. Your your community, your brothers and sisters, you practice confession and repentance. If you're like, well, I don't know what that is. Go back, last week I, I preached on repentance. Psalm 51, David, Solomon's father. What an interesting connection here. Solomon born out of lust, out of deception. And yet here, he is saying, son, listen to this. What, we're all power and genuine freedom come when you name your sin in the presence of loving community. I, I love our groups. We're not perfect. We're growing in this. We're, we're going to see more discipleship as, a year, as a, the Lord continues to move and stir. But practicing confession and repentance and community is big. With your spouse, it's big. It's, hey, naming your sin, I'm struggling with this. Can you help me? Brother, I, I really, I don't even know where to turn. Community. Naming your sin out loud to people you know and trust has a power to break chains. So find ways of living in reliance on the Spirit's presence and power in your ordinary life. Think about your habits, your presence throughout the day. Ask the question, does this sow into my flesh or into my spirit? Is this going to help me or is this going to entrap me? The key to spiritual formation is to change what we can control, your habits, in order to influence what we can't control, your flesh. So for some of us, this just is a simple call to flee from it. Restrict what you're looking at online. Quit watching certain TV shows that you know is going to trigger something. Quit scrolling Twitter and Instagram. Watch the social situations that you put yourself in. Switch jobs if that's what it takes. Flee from it. You can't flirt with it. I have over and over again, I sit in in different counseling over the years, 15, 16 years, and and I, I see In my own life, what that sin could have done had God not got a hold of my heart, I actually see what it does in two families. It rips families apart. Flee from this, brothers and sisters. It is worth it. Some of you might be thinking, man, this, this dude's overreacting. Verse 23, he dies for lack of discipline. Solomon says, you don't do this. You're going to die for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he's led astray. Sexual sin isn't something to flirt with. It's, extre- it's so extremely attractive and addictive. And those two things combined are lethal. So any sacrifice that you got to take, make it. It's well worth it. And then to the one, my prideful friend here this morning, who says, man, that, that's never going to happen to us. Also, Solomon is the one that says pride comes before the fall. There's a reason we read flee and not flirt. Not do better, try harder. Flee. 1 Corinthians 6, flee from sexual immorality. 2 Timothy 2, flee from youthful passions. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. Solomon, Proverbs 6, if you play with fire, you're going to get burned. That's Matt's version. Can a man walk on burning coals without scorching his feet? Wisdom says, do not flirt with sexual sin. What do you need to flee from today? Second thing, they will get quicker, trust me, but I, I just got set to the, set the tone here. Consider what's ahead. Wisdom would say, consider what's ahead. Where does this all lead to? Well, death, you've heard me say it over and over again. Verse 11. At the end of your life, Solomon says, you're going to groan when your flesh and your body are consumed. Satan, the father of lies, says things like, hey, what happens in Mexico stays in Mexico. No one's ever going to know. There's no such things as no strings attached. Satan, the biggest fool of them all, offers this sin with no regret. It's not that big of a deal. It's not harming anybody. It started in the garden. So hear me on this. When, not if, a man or woman tempts you with the assurance that no one will ever know. Flee from that lie, but do not fall into that temptation. There's consequences. Wisdom tells us, do not go near the door of a house, lest you give your honor to others. In your years, to merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your, your labors go to the house of a foreigner. Like it might seem attractive now, might seem enticing now, but in the end, it's all going to look different. Verse 12 and 13, you say how I hated discipline. And my heart, despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my heart to my instructors. Wisdom says, consider the end before you get there. The story of seduction in chapter 7, I read some of it. Listen to the ending. So the, the, the prostitute, the adulterist, is coming to him. He's now walking to her. He's now encountered her. And she says, my husband isn't home. He went on a long journey. She seduces him with her persistent pleading. She lures with her flattering talk. He follows her impulsively. Like an ox going to the slaughter. Like a deer bounding toward a trap until an arrow pierces its liver. Like a bird darting into a snare. He doesn't know it will cost him his life. Man, it might seem obvious. Like it might be very obvious and enough. But think about how frequently the consequences of our sin catch us by surprise. Get in a fight with a friend. Me and Ben. Ben. We start throwing down because, I don't know, tech lost or something. And I was going for a and tech lost. I don't even know if you like Ben. I don't know if you like tech. But the point is, Ben and I get in an argument. He throws a punch. I throw him back. Bloody eye. I obviously win because I crossfit. Um, I'm totally joking. <laughs> oh, I love that. But imagine, black eye, bloody lip. We go our separate ways we come back, forgiveness doesn't always remove the consequences of the sin at play. We might forgive each other, but I'm going to be preaching with a black eye, and he's going to have a bloody lip. There's consequences to our sin. Think back to last week, Psalm 51. It was a psalm of lament from David about his confession and repentance of sin. He confesses it. He owns it, calls it what it is. It's this beautiful process of him grieving his sin and then turning from it, repenting and turning back to God. But there were real and devastating consequences of his sin. Forgiven? Absolutely, yes. Consequences of his sin? 100%. And it's painful to see it play out. Rape, murder, all led to death. The consequences didn't just affect David. You can see that. You can read 2 Samuel chapter 12 through 15. In the moment, he was tempted with sexual desires. David became a taker and a user in that very moment. He took what was not his, Bathsheba, and he used her. And instead of fleeing, he saw what he thought would be honey, and at the end, as bitter as a wormwood and as sharp as a double-edged sword. When we don't consider what might be ahead, we become takers instead of lovers, users instead of givers. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, he says this, the man or woman driven by lust is not consumed with desire for a person, but for selfish pleasure. Once the pleasure is grasped, the person is discarded. How much he, the lustful man or woman, cares about the other is such may be gauged by his attitude for them. Because five minutes after fruition, one does not keep the carton after he has smoked all the cigarettes. Abusers and users for your own selfish desires is what we are. So hear this as a clear warning. Sin's going to lead to death. Temptation always doesn't come in the form of a person. We live in the modern age. Your phone, the thing that controls us the most actually entices us the most studies continue to reveal over and over again tragic effects of pornography and what it does to our brains study after study shows how it can rewire your brain with addictive power it can literally take you prisoner flee from this fight this temptation and for me to kind of circle back left you in a cliffhanger there when i told you what I struggled with but for me it wasn't until I realized what porn was doing to my soul that I knew something was actually wrong guilt and shame i felt over and over again i felt it i felt it in my marriage but it was worldly shame and it was just guilt like i just felt bad that i was letting people down i didn't want people to know that i struggled but i wasn't ready to kill the sin i could live with that shame until I called it for what it was, until I actually got honest. Listen to the words of Ray Ortland in his book, Death of Porn. You'll start getting free when you start getting honest. No man is helped by nicey, nice, hypocritical words like, ah, I slipped up today. If you look at porn, be honest enough to say to God, Today, I entertained myself with sexual exploitation. Or today, I joined in the abuse of a woman. Call it for what it is. Fight sin. Kill it. Put it to death. Flee from it because your family is worth it. Consider what might be ahead. And then in the power of the Holy Spirit, over time, let the Spirit, beautifully rewire your soul and your mind. We're wired back for intimacy with God and with others through his redeeming love. Turn to Jesus. And in that, wisdom says that we would honor our covenant with our spouse. If we were all longing to get back to Eden, get back to the garden, back to God's beautiful design of sexuality, then that means all fulfillment and all pleasure was there in the garden with Adam and Eve. If it was perfect, that means every pleasure, every satisfaction, everything that you think you feel enticed to now was all there in the garden. Full pleasure and satisfaction before their creator at that. Look with me at chapter 5, verse 15 and 19. Drink water from your own cistern, water flowing from your own well. Should your springs flow in the streets, streams in the public squares, they should be for you alone and not for you to share with strangers. Let your fountain be blessed. Take pleasure in the wife of your youth. Verse 19, a loving deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast always satisfy you. Be lost in her love forever. Rated mature, a lot of the Bible. But if we're talking about perversion in our culture, for sure we would read that and think rated mature. But if we're talking about God's beautiful design, then sex is where we can find joy and pleasure in our marriage, which is the way God intended it to be. Sex is driven by the worship of our hearts. You got two roads here. One road is this, worship yourself and use others. Or something similar, worship sex, and in that you're gonna assume it's gonna deliver what was never intended to do. It will never deliver to you contentment. It will never deliver to you meaning or purpose. You're not gonna find life in it. It can't be your Savior. That's one road. The second road that you have is worship God. Bow down to no other idol and find ultimate meaning, fulfillment, contentment, joy, peace, love, purpose. Find your Savior and allow Him to be the one who through His pleasures and glorious riches gives you joy in your spouse the most worshipful and intimate way, the way that he intended it to be. I think as a church, we've shied away from this. There was a time where it was looked down upon, right? Like, ooh, we're gonna talk about sex and it's just kind of weird. Sex is not gross and it's not to be stayed away from. It's also not to be a God who you worship, but it is a gift to be skillfully and unashamedly enjoyed in the context of marriage. The Bible's full of beautiful examples that I will not read out loud, especially in family gatherings, but there's beautiful examples how we're to enjoy it in the context and covenant of marriage. Like we shouldn't be surprised here by the imagery we see in the word. God designed it. Human sexuality and intends for husband and wife to enjoy all the pleasures with one another. He says to be intoxicated always in her, her love. Just as equal for the wife to be delighted and intoxicated by the love of her husband. Paul in 1 Corinthians says, a husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise a wife to her husband. Verse 4, a wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. Don't stop there. In the same way, a husband does not have the right of his own body, but his wife does. Two become one. Just with everything good and for what it was designed to be worshipful, we are good at twisting and offering false sense of enjoyments, pleasure, pleasure, And other alternative intoxications, stick with the phrasing of our text. Solomon says, why, my son, would you lose yourself with a forbidden woman or embrace a wayward woman? It might feel good. It might feel every bit as good as the fulfillment offered within marriage, but we all know stories, personal accounts, where adultery, sexual sin enters... And it ruins marriages, and it ruins families, emotionally, spiritually, physically, sometimes for generations, it has effects. Solomon would say, honor your covenant. Wisdom says, honor your covenant. Like there ought to be a deep sacrificial love at the center of your covenant to one another. Deep friendship, an eternal bond. Cultivate that friendship in your marriage. Invest in one another. Invest in your friendship. Work at cultivating this beautiful, intimate marriage that produces joy and delight in God and in one another. If you're single, persevere. Like you might hear this intimate satisfaction. You might desire this so bad. Persevere. Brother and sister, uphold and honor the marriage bed as you live a life of purity. Be faithful to Jesus and allow him to be the joy of your life. And then lastly, I close with this. Wisdom says, flee, consider what's ahead. Honor your covenant at hand. Remember that God is watching. Verse 21 in chapter five, for a man's ways are before the Lord's eyes. He considers all of his paths. Like hear this as a warning to each of us that we can hide our sin pretty well. We can let people in just enough to act like we have it all together but will never be able to deceive God. He knows your every thought. He knows your search history. He knows the passions and desires of your flesh. He knows all of your sin. And yet, even in all of that, he draws near to you. He actually understands the temptation and the struggle that it is. He faced trials and temptations that you do. That's why he draws near to you. That's why he says, I draw near to the brokenhearted." Fight for holiness, family. Flee from sin. Fight for purity in your homes, with your children, your spouse, and your friendships. How you perceive people at work. Fight for holiness and purity. So I don't know what you need to do today. But that's a lot. I get that. I don't know what invitation you feel from the Spirit. But my prayer is this, that you would feel an invitation to a God who cares for you, who loves you, who has created you to love exactly what we talked about. There's nothing gross about your marriage and how you love and are intimate with each other. I don't know what the Spirit's inviting you into. Maybe it's confession between you and your spouse, you and the Lord, whatever it is. I can walk through that stuff with you. Like that's, somebody asked me the other day about, pastoring. I think a lot of people think I just sit and write a sermon. Like, I don't know. Maybe that's what y'all think. A lot of my time, though, is spent with, with the sheep. That's my conviction because that's what the Word says. I should smell like sheep. I'm a sheep myself. I have my own struggles, my own sin. I got to come before the Holy Lord and say, Father, I've, I've sinned against you. I got to fight sin alongside you. If you're you're just overwhelmed right now with the weight of the things that you're carrying, the Father comes to you. The Son can forgive you. I can come alongside you and just help you and love you and care for you and enter into those conversations with your spouse if you're worried about how people respond. That's what I find joy in not fixing people, but pointing them to the one who can. Spirit, would you move in a mighty way this morning? I know this is a lot. Wisdom tells me to step away and to trust you. And so with that, I do. However you need to lead, we're open-handed to what you're doing. We trust you. Comfort those who need comfort. Convict those who are wrestling with pride right now. Anyone who's worried about approval, people are going to think I don't have it all together if I, if I actually admit I'm struggling with stuff. Lord, would you rid us of, of that pride? that false humility. We love you, Lord. We praise you. You are good. You are are a God who forgives. In all of the mess, you forgive. Help us to cry out to you. In Jesus' name, amen.